looking at this text this morning, <clears throat> we're kind of coming off um, the, the, this previous section where Jesus picks his disciples and he, he calls the 12 to him and that they might be with him, um, that he might instruct them and, and they might observe his life and make them disciples. And, um, you know, really that they would observe his life carefully. And this, this account that we see here is, is um, the account, the, the book of Mark, it's written by Mark. However, uh, most scholars think that this is the actual eyewitness account of Peter, the, the chief, the lead apostle there that, that um, Jesus seemed to kind of keep closest to him and instruct him in there. And so through this, the reason that, that Mark is writing, we said, um, when we looked at it, is because at the time of, of Jesus, as um, after Jesus ascended and as eyewitnesses began to die off, people began to, to recast the Jesus story. They began to make up their own idea of who Jesus was. And, and you know, there, there weren't uh, a large number of eyewitnesses to refute uh, you know, Mark wanted to get into writing before all these eyewitnesses died off who the real Jesus was. And this is the reason that he's writing, um, why he writes the book of Mark, why he, he gets into this. Because the context surrounding the book of Mark at this time, is, when, when he writes, is a context of unbelief. There's a context of of people not really being sure and anyone being able to say, you know, well, uh, you know, I saw Jesus doing this, and, and there would, you know, Mark didn't want it to come to a point where there were no eyewitnesses to validate what actually happened. And so Mark seeks to put down in writing who the real Jesus is. But because, there, because his chief reason in writing was because people were making up their own ideas about who Jesus was. They were coming with their own understanding as to who they wanted Jesus to be to fit their life or their lifestyle. And so Mark this morning, um, he records this instance where it's kind of like the first section that we, um, that we look at. He uses this technique called the sandwich. It's really great. We touched, we touched on this in the very first uh, very first week where we looked at the overview of the book of Mark, we talked about Mark and sandwiches, which I think is just great because um, it's a fun term. And so basically what, what we're doing this morning is we're looking at two different accounts, but it appears to a certain extent that it's three. So the first account that we're going to look at is Jesus's family. And then what, what happens in the text is we, we zoom in almost to a, a closer instance in this story and we see Jesus having a, an argument, an, an accusation, and then an argument with the scribes here. And then what happens is we zoom back out and we see his family again. But what these, these aren't three separate kind of instances or stories, but they're meant to be taken as one story to understand, uh, you know, the, the, the sinner story there of Jesus dealing with the scribes and this accusation that they bring against him is meant to, to help us understand, you know, the, the greater picture as a whole. And so this morning, we're going to look at three claims um, to the identity of Jesus, how people have, have cast Jesus, how they have said who Jesus is. So the first one we start off with is in verse 20. Verse 20, it tells us uh, Jesus, after this, this last instance um, that, that he goes through in verse 19, 
he names the, the apostles and, the, uh, and creates this, this new family, this new community to follow him around. Then he goes home, and the crowd gathers again. It was so busy that they couldn't even eat. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he was out of his mind. So his family's upset here, and they actually go to take him by force. The, the Greek wording here in this instance is actually even more specific, it, and I kind of had to laugh about it because it actually says, the Greek word surrounding this, it meant that they went to seize him, believing that Jesus had gone berserk. You know, and I just kind of had to chuckle there looking at the, the whole idea of Jesus being berserk and, and being in Berkeley and the whole moniker of Berkeley being berserk and berserkly. And, and Jesus is totally, you know, he fits within this context of like people recasting him. And there's this idea surrounding his family that Jesus is just crazy. He's straight up nuts. And what happens is the family thinks that he's actually embarrassing their family name. He's messing things up for, you know, this, their, their, um, their legacy. Now, you would think that it's Jesus' family, so they would be like, okay, uh, you guys are, are my closest blood relatives. You guys are insiders. But it's actually the insiders who, who in this case, are outsiders. Mark begins to use this contrast, and he introduces it here in, uh, in chapter 3, where you see those who appear to be inside of Jesus's, or would be appear to be inside of Jesus's favor, are actually far from him. You see that with his family who come to to take him by force away. They think he's crazy. You see that with the Pharisees, and you think, okay, well, Jesus is coming a part of God's will, and the Pharisees have been preparing for this. And those who would who would naturally seem to fall in line, those who would seem to be closest to him are actually the furthest from him. But those who are actually in society and in society and culturally who are far from Jesus, who are the leper, the lame man, those are actually closest to Jesus and coming to him and, and having hope within him. And so his, his, his own family has this idea that he is just nuts. He's a madman. He's, he's a loony. They think he's mentally insane, and they come to take him by force. Now, within this episode, we see um, his, this family account in the front end and in the back end, and it it's actually bookends the, the main point of the text for us. Now, what it does, by having these two separate these two separate instances of the family where, where it's a wide shot, we see the action of the family coming to remove him, and then it zooms in and we see the action of the Pharisees, and then at the tail end, um, you know, we see the family again and the reaction there and what Jesus is doing. By, by putting the, the story together in this way, what Mark is doing is he's making a point, and the point is this, that Jesus will not, recast, will not be recast or identified to others by what we think about him. He identifies himself as one who has come to overthrow Satan and to set captives free. So keep that in mind as we look at the text. The point of the story is this. Jesus will not be recast or identified to others by what we think about him. However, he identifies himself as one who comes to overthrow Satan and to set captives free. So in the text this morning... 
we see that Jesus is not subject to, the, to our wills or to our desires. He is creator. He is God, and we must be subject and follow him. And so we zoom in here to the second story, the, this uh, second little pericope here. Now, note here, as I was saying, this, this, it's a second story, but it's not a secondary story. This isn't kind of like a little tangent. This is, it's, it's a second story that we find within there, but it's important to the text. And in this portion, we see this second false accusation, uh, the false recasting of who Jesus is. The first one is that his family comes and, and they think that Jesus is nuts. So their idea, their understanding of Jesus is, we think that Jesus is crazy. He's not who he says he is. He's got all these people coming to him. He's got these huge crowds. He's casting out demons. He's just, you know, making crazy stuff happen. We think he's nuts, a madman. The second, the second um, accusation here is the scribes bringing this demonic charge against Jesus. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So things began to get interesting, because previously, Jesus was interacting with scribes and Pharisees, but they were local scribes and Pharisees. They were guys from his region, people who were, uh, you know, running the synagogue in uh, Capernaum in the, in the area of Galilee. But this is like, now it's getting serious. Now it's turning into a bigger deal. The big boys come out. This is from Jerusalem, the, the, uh, you know, the heart of Judaism. And so these, these scribes and Pharisees, they come out and they don't beat around the bush like they used to. They don't ask these, these you know, random questions insinuating certain things and trying to, to trap Jesus in his words, but they, they get straight to him. They, in verse 22, it says very plainly, they just say, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, Beelzebul, uh, we could go into like a really long sort of tangent about this, but we'll just say most commentators believe that Beelzebul is actually Satan. Um, you know, you can, you can trace it out in a bunch of scholarly ways, but the way that, that Jesus makes these comparisons is to uh, Beelzebul being the, the, the claim that Beelzebul is the prince of demons, and then Jesus later talks about in his response in a parable, um, binding, you know, the strong man or Satan. And so Beelzebul is uh, Satan. And so what they're saying is that he's possessed by Satan, and by Satan's power, he casts out demons. This is the, this is the ability by which Jesus works. This is the, the, the thing that they're bringing, the charge that they're bringing against him. Jesus is in league with Satan. They're on the same team. And he is working against us, you know, basically. Now, they don't deny Jesus' power. They don't deny the miracles that he performs. They're accusation is that he is, is misrepresenting the source of his power. They recognize that, that he has this miracle, uh, this ability to perform these miracles. They, they don't deny that. They're not coming against him in that way, but rather they're saying that Satan is the one who is empowering him to perform these miracles, which, which when Jesus does perform these miracles, what happens? If we, as we look through the text, what happens is Jesus 
makes, uh, you know, he, he mends the broken. He makes people whole. And as a result, people glorify God, crowds glorify God. And so what's happening here in this demonic uh, accusation that the scribes are making is they're basically saying that the result or, or the source of that ability, the source of that power is Satan. What, what is happening here is basic idolatry. What they're saying is God is not receiving the glory for what's being done, but we're saying that the root of this is in fact Satan. Now, this charge is totally, it's, it's, a, it's a false trumped-up charge. It's something that they have set out to bring against Jesus because they want to kill him. Because in, uh, in order to, if, if you were seen to be a sorcerer or involved in demonic activity, it was the death penalty. That, that's what happened. And so these charges are actually trumped-up charges. Because the first time that Jesus cast out a demon, where was he? He was in the synagogue. So all of the, the religious leaders were around. All the people were around. In Mark 24, this is what happens when Jesus has this encounter with the demons. There, in front of everybody. Mark 1.24, the demons say to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons aren't calling out like, Hey, you're on our team, what's the deal? They're, they're identifying Jesus as like, we are not on the same side. We know who you are. This was in front of everybody. There wasn't a confusion as to like the scribes and the Pharisees thought like, you know what, maybe this is through Satan's power. They called out, like they're, they're, they called out this claim as to who Jesus was in fact, uh, you know, claiming to be. It would have been an absolutely foolish charge to bring against Jesus. Now, the other reason that they would have brought this uh, charge is because the rabbis had rules to, to govern this type of charismatic activity. The, the basic guideline is that charismatic activity that was consistent or confirmed the law was sanctioned, while charismatic activity that leads one away from the law is it's discounted. It's, you know, it's seen as magic or demonism and thus would be deemed worthy of death. And so what, they, what their claim was, what they're, they're actually thinking is that because Jesus was appearing to be loose with the law, he didn't fall in line with their tradition and he didn't fall in line with their religious rituals. He therefore was, although he was performing these miracles, they must be coming from Satan. But what was happening actually in the miracles? Because when Jesus performed the miracles, what was happening was he was freeing people from Satan's grip when he cast out demons. Satan would have, uh, would have influence or sway over a person's life, and Jesus would come to defeat Satan and to free that person. And so in that work, Jesus' whole um, mission there was to make it so that men and women were free from the devil, that they were free from the devil's works. And in doing that, he wasn't actually coming against the law. He was freeing people to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be empowered by God, to keep the law. Although they would never keep it perfectly, he was enabling people to fall more in line with the law. And it was just, it was the, the jealousies and uh, the opposition to the Pharisees and the scribes' traditions and rituals that really uh, made them upset and caused 
this sort of battle to take place. Now, in verse 23, Jesus responds back to them after they make this charge. They, they come at him uh, with this charge that he is, you know, uh, possessed by Satan and he is casting out demons through Satan's power. Now, Jesus comes back with a parable and responds to them. In verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So Jesus uses this simple logic to, to refute the case of the scribes. This isn't, like, real tricky here. He basically says, Satan, if he was trying to conquer something, he wouldn't conquer it by conquering himself. He wouldn't cast out Satan. He says very plainly, a kingdom cannot be divided against itself or else it will fall. If you, if you have uh, you know, a division or a wedge driven in that kingdom, it will you know, not be united in its front and it will be overthrown. He also says that a house cannot be divided against itself. You know, and, and that would be overthrown. And in these words of kingdom and house, what he's actually speaking to is Satan's rule, Satan's dominion, and the power and work that he's seeking to have here on the earth. Now, what he does say is that Satan is not divided. You know, he says that um, in verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and he is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. However, Satan is not coming to an end. If Satan was divided against himself, then that would be a quick way to defeat him. But he's not. Therefore, Jesus offers in this next verse uh, how to defeat Satan. He says in verse 27, uh, through this parable of the strong man, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So through this parable of the strong man, uh, you know, and this man entering the strong man's house and binding the strong man, Jesus establishes uh, whether, well, I guess not whether or not his, his, his kingdom has fallen or his dominion has fallen, but the manner in which it must be defeated. He's saying that Satan's kingdom is not going to be defeated by this internal collapse where Satan fights against Satan. But he, he, what he's seeking to communicate here is that Satan's dominion is being reduced by an outside force. It's being, it, it's uh, forces that are coming against it that are that are from the outside that are attacking from the outside, and he's referring to himself here as the one who is doing that, as the one who will enter the strong man's house and bind that strong man. This is happening through the work of Christ on the cross and, and through his mission here. The mission of Jesus that we see in the book of Mark's in the book of Mark is is not one of of compromise where he works together with Satan or where he's where he's you know coexisting alongside Satan, but this is a full-on invasion into uh, the territory of the enemy where he seeks to conquer, to destroy and to redeem. 
uh, this, this was Jesus' mission, and, and he has said it again and again. We look at Mark 10.45. If you guys don't have it memorized by now, I don't know how that's possible. We seriously talk about it every week. Mark 10.45, for the, even the Son of Man came not to be, uh, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is the, the, the key to the book of Mark. That is the reason, the purpose. He came as the fulfillment of the Messiah, the King, but he also came to, uh, to serve and not to be served, to give his life, not to take others. Now, as the Son of God and as this, this figure who plunders the strong man's house, Jesus has to do something for humanity, something for all of mankind before he does something to it. He has to uh, redeem you and I from the power of Satan before we're, we're restored to the image of God. First John 3, uh, 3, 8 says this, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now the devil's work, it says here, is, is sin. He's come to destroy sin, and those who are of the devil are marked by sin. However, Jesus has come to destroy that. He has come to conquer sin. He has come to overthrow this strong man. And in doing so, you know, we would say that, that sin, it, it's uh, synonymous uh, to a certain extent uh, with lawlessness, you know, it's that, uh, that breaking of the law or overlooking God's law. And so what Jesus actually was doing here, his mission was to destroy the works of the devil, not to strengthen them. His mission, you know, was, was totally counter, uh, counterintuitive to what the, the scribes and the Pharisees thought of him, where he was departing from the law. Jesus was actually uh, calling people into freedom and removing them from sin and from lawlessness that they might better serve God and know him in that way. Now, Mark 3.27 uh, has this idea of the, the entering a strong man's house and plundering and redeeming. And this was foretold uh, in Isaiah's suffering servant. As we looked at that, there's a, a lot of uh, passages in the book of Mark where, where he recalls this promised uh, servant who would come in the book of Isaiah, this Messiah figure who would fulfill this work. In Isaiah 49, 24-26, regarding the suffering servant, it says this, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. In this picture in the book of Isaiah, God takes the this, this spoils, this, this messianic suffering servant. He takes spoils from a powerful opponent one who, who comes against his kingdom by rescuing his people from their captivity. 
This is what we're seeing taking place through this parable in Mark 3.27. That this idea that Jesus would enter the strong man's house, that he would bind the strong man, that he would indeed remove that which the strong man was holding captive. It was through, through his work that, that we, you and I, would be saved. Now Jesus goes on and he transitions here to, to more of an offensive position in verse 28. In verse 28, he says, and, and he makes this, he, he, he kind of signifies a seriousness and of change, um, a seriousness of tone through his wording here. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So Jesus comes at them uh, on the offensive now. He's, he, what he's saying is, consider your claim. Consider what you are saying about me, that I am indeed in, in league with Satan, that I am this charge, that I am, am demon-possessed. What he's saying here is that he calls this, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because in, in the view of Scripture here, Jesus, uh, the true source of Jesus' power, this exorcism uh, that he, he gives in, in different portions of the book of Mark, and the miracle working power is not a demonic spirit, but is in fact the Holy Spirit, the power of God working through Jesus. And so, uh, as I was saying, this is, this is an idolatry issue here. What they're saying is someone is giving glory to something other than God. This, th- these works, these great things, these freeing acts to people who have been in bondage to Satan, those things should be attributed to God. They should be given, over, given glory to God through those works. But here, through this accusation that Jesus is not doing the work of God, but yet is filled with the demon and is, is casting out Satan by Satan, it actually is uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit in that sense. Now, um, verse 29 and 30, he talks about this idea about blaspheming, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and those who do that never have forgiveness but are guilty of an eternal sin. It's a pretty heavy passage, and... and um, uh, there's a lot to kind of consider around it. But quickly, um, here's, here's a, a commentator who remarked on this section. I thought it would be much easier to um, kind of mention this. Commentator uh, D.A. Carson, one of my favorites, uh, on this passage, he says that the eternal sin or this, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it means a deliberate closing of the heart and mind to the witness of the Spirit to Jesus something of which the teachers had just shown themselves to be guilty. Such a willful and deliberate twisting of the truth makes repentance and salvation impossible, for it has shut the one gate to salvation God has opened. It is not that God is unwilling to forgive, but that the person concerned is unwilling to receive his forgiveness. So this is called an an eternal sin here, because it has an eternal consequence. This, what, when it talks about this uh, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit or rejecting of the Holy Spirit here, what it's actually, you know, what, what he's actually remarking upon is that uh, this is a total and final rejection of God's call, you know, or, or 
God's call to, to follow him. This is a total and final uh, response. Now, Mark writes this as, a, as a, more of a, a warning, not a condemnation. He writes this as a reason, uh, you know, as a reason for people to consider what they think of Jesus rather than a, a reason to freak people out. He's not writing to, to cause a lot of drama here or cause concern, but he's writing as a warning. Now, if you're worried about committing the sin, you haven't committed it because you're, you know, you're still worried about it. And the only person who can really judge whether like you have taken part in this sin is God, because he's the only person that knows the heart, and this is a total and final rejection. So, only, you know, really, I'm not going to be able to judge that, and if someone's dead, then God will judge that, and at that point, they can't really decide anymore. They're already dead. Um, but as long as someone is living and they're able to hear the gospel proclaimed and able to make a response. I'm not there to, to make a judgment on whether like they're in this uh, you know, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. The, another uh, little section that kind of just gives us, um, I guess, real great, I guess it gives me joy <laughs> considering that um, you know, we can see the heart of God here. Peter, when, when, just before Jesus went to the cross, when he was sitting around the fire there, he cursed and he swore in this way that, that he didn't know Jesus. When they were bringing him, they're like, weren't you with him? And he, he was swearing in this blaspheming the Holy Spirit sort of way, like, no, I am not a part of him. When, like, just before that, he's like, yeah, I'll wash your feet, wash all of, you know, wash my you know, watch all of me. I want to be all a part of you. I want to, you know, we're together forever. And then now he's just blowing it here. Peter's just dropping the ball when they're like, weren't you with him? He's like, no, I've never known him. I'm not a part of him. In, in, in this sense, Peter cursed and he swore that he did not know Jesus. And if he could repent and be forgiven, then so can we. You know, like I was saying, this is only something where where God is able to judge here. Throughout all of Scripture, there's no, there, there's no record where anyone who has asked God for forgiveness and been denied forgiveness. God's forgiveness, it, it, it is, God is so compassionate and gracious that he is able to, to extend that love. And what, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's really just saying, pause and check what you're saying here. Like, consider the accusation that is being made. That you are aligning yourself with Satan by not identifying the work of God. Now, in verse 31 and 35, we zoom out again to see the other end. Back to Jesus' family. And here we see not only his blood relatives who call him crazy, like this lunatic madman, but also in this new text here, we see a new family that Jesus creates of those who rightly see him as Savior of the world. Read with me verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So at some point, as Jesus is sitting here, uh, still dealing with the Pharisees and, you know, he's teaching. This, this, this first portion with his family, they come to seize him and they think he's crazy. This is the same instance here on the back end. We kind of zoom back out to what's happening in, um, after this episode here with the, with the scribes. And at some point... Here, Jesus, uh, um, you know, someone passes a message to Jesus or they play this really intense game of telephone where it gets all around, you know, through all the people and finally to Jesus where they're sitting around him, you know, and they're like, hey, Jesus, your mom is outside. (laughs) She wants you. She wants you to like jet out of here. You know, like maybe not when Jesus was older, but when you were younger, like that's super embarrassing (laughs) when you're like hanging out with your friends who think you're cool. And they're like, hey, your mom's here. (laughs) Like, no. He just messed up my vibe. You know, here Jesus is instructing this people, this group of people that he's teaching them, and his family is on the outside. Remember how we talked about that idea of, of those who are closest to him being outside? You know, it's, and those who would seemingly don't know him at all, they're not related by blood, yet there they are sitting around his feet, worshiping as they hear him teach. So his family's here. They're attempting to, to make this claim on him. They're like, come on, get out of here. You know, the, they think that they have the rights to call him. They think that they have, you know, this great um, power by which they can be like, hey, look, you're in our family. I'm your mom. Let's go. But wh- what happens here? Jesus, Jesus kind of flips it around, and, and he makes a different kind of claim here. Now, his family is on the outside, and we got to notice, um, notice uh, like, I guess it's one thing here. Being with Jesus around him uh, and, and following him, those are two different things. But being with Jesus and being against Jesus, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus' relatives are near to him, but they're definitely not near to him. They're in the area, they're blood relatives, but they don't know what he's about, what he's doing. The, the placement here in the story, Mark uses this in a very symbolic and emblematic way of the position of their hearts. They're not responding to what Jesus is doing, but rather are concerned about their own family name. Now, uh, and this happens with, you know, even with some of his disciples, some of his closest followers as well. Over time, you see that they try to call him away from, from his mission. Now, Jesus doesn't allow his own people, you know, as it says in, in verse 21, nor his mother and his brothers and sisters to take prior, priority over this new work that he's done. He doesn't respond in the way that culture or society would tell us that he would have to respond. And for us, you know, that, that's kind of, as a church, that's kind of how we need to respond. We have no clue what's going on here. Like, we're a, a, a church that loves Jesus, and we're following Jesus. And that's pretty much all we got. We don't have a plan, necessarily, that is really extensive. And, you know, we recognize as a church that Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church. Jesus is our leader, you know, and this is why we pray as a church. This is why we ask Jesus what he's doing. 
you know, I'm not in charge of the church. I'm an under shepherd. And so I don't have like a grand business plan. Like we, I just, we have to get down on our knees and ask Jesus, what are you doing here? Because we're only doing what you're doing. We're only want to be a part of what you're doing. And if you're not doing it, we don't want to be a part of that. We want to follow you. And so we have to yield to him in this instance, just as this new community that sits at his feet are doing. His mother and his brothers are outside. They don't understand. They're trying to kind of get him to comply with what they want him to do. But what Jesus does is he, he, he flips it around, and instead of listening, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. He declares, it's crazy. I just, you would think that it'd be like probably pretty insulting to hear that. And in so making this claim, what Jesus does is he actually redefines family. He, he alerts his natural family who's outside that like, just because you're blood related to me, that doesn't mean that you're closer to me. And what he, what he does here, in verse 35, he says that whoever does God's will is closer to him than any of his blood relatives. Notice the contrast there in verse 35. Whoever does God's will is what, is what he says. He, he specifically remarks on that. He contrasts between hearing God's, God's word and doing. It's whoever does God's will whoever is obedient to God's will. James 1.22 tells us and exhorts us as believers to be doers of the word and not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. In John 14, uh, verse 15, Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, hear my commandments. It's, there's a difference between hearing and doing. And here, Jesus calls those who want to be a part of his new family to do God's will. Those who sit around him at this point and do his will are his family. Now, this is a stark contrast to previous crowds that we've seen in the book of Mark, because previously, whenever there's a crowd around Jesus, it's like, it's massive, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like a concert crowd where like people are kind of trying to rush the stage and get to the front, you know, and be as close as possible. And, and they're trying to kind of like thrash about and mow anybody down to get to where Jesus is so that way they can, you know, be healed or, or experience a miracle in that sort of way. But yet this new family that he, he uh, we see around him in this text, they're sitting, they're responding, they're hearing Jesus teach, and they're doing the will of God. They have a right understanding of who Jesus is. They don't have a full understanding because Jesus hasn't yet been revealed in, in their day, in their text, uh, you know, as the, the Son of God who was crucified on the cross for their sins, who God raised from the dead on the third day. They don't yet see that, but they know that this man has the words of life and they're following. They're doing what he says. They're beginning to rightly understand who Jesus says he is. And so his hearers there, they have to understand and they have to think over, you know, after seeing these three different accusations where like his family is coming and they're like, Jesus is nuts. And they have to consider that. They're, you know, the second one where the, the, the scribes are there and they're like, Jesus is demon possessed. He is like in on Satan's team. And then they have to consider the third one where Jesus is who he says he is that he is the Lord of all, the Lord of creation. 
It's important, uh, it's important to consider that for each of his followers, whether, you know, because as we saw, just because you are near to where he is at, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're following him. Just because you're in the same room with other people who claim to follow him doesn't mean that you're necessarily following him. You know, and we even see that in the text. After all, I mean, he keeps his blood relatives outside. They don't even get to be in in the closest circle there. We can't assume that, you know, that we know and we have to consider these, these different identities that are claimed. And so this morning, we consider the three claims that are made regarding Jesus this morning. He was, as his family claimed, a crazy man, a madman, a lunatic. He was, as the scribes and the Pharisees claimed, a demon or the leader of the demons or in league with Satan, or as he claimed, he was God in the flesh who has come to earth to die on the cross for our sins, to destroy the works of Satan, you know, to plunder that strong man and to redeem you and I to God. And those are the options that we have to look at this morning. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, professor and author, uh, he, he said it this way. I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is, not, uh, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis remarks here that there aren't any options. When you consider the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, he doesn't leave these these doors open to us to make what we want out of him as the people in Jesus' day did as they were trying to recast him into his, their own sort of idea of the type of Jesus that they wanted. And that's actually what happens a lot. Our culture is very similar now where, you know, there's hippie Jesus or hipster Jesus or there's, you know, American dream Jesus, and it just gets all crazy. But we want to see the, the real Jesus. We want to respond to the real Jesus. There's only two kinds of people that those who sit at his feet and do the will of God and those who are on the outside with false assumptions as to who he is. And anyone who who sits at the feet and does the will of God, those people can be a part of his family. But anybody who refuses that cannot. And so this morning, those are things for us to consider to respond to and how we will respond to the identity of Jesus and how we will worship him. And so this morning, that's, that's what um, we're going to reflect on. What I want to consider is, is um, you know, personally, I'm, I'm thankful that Jesus was faithful to, to come and to, to bind the strong man and to redeem you and I 
to God. And so uh, we'll worship. Lord, we're thankful that you were.